0: Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy in international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're talking about Haiti, and more specifically about the role of NGOs in Haiti. Now, this is a country that has been dubbed the Republic of NGOs, or Republique des ONG by NACLA, which is the North American Congress on Latin America, and this comes as no surprise as the number has been estimated to be anywhere from 343 to 20,000 according to the Center for Global Development back in 2012. And the numbers have of course increased since 2010 earthquake, which the country has still yet to recover from. Now. With the presence of this many NGOs, and even a UN peacekeeping mission in addition to economic and political woes, one must ask the question if the role of NGOs has actually helped Haiti, and if their presence has been more harmful than good, and if so, what is the approach that NGOs should take when operating in the country? Joining us on today's episode are both Brian Concanen and Tim Schwartz to discuss this precise question. Now, Brian is a human rights lawyer who has been the executive director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti since 2004. And this brings the Haitian people's fight for justice to countries abroad where too many decisions about Haiti's rights are being made. Now, Brian has spent nine years in Haiti with the United Nations and the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux and has written about the role of NGOs in Haiti in multiple channels, from academic journals to numerous reports for international organizations such as the United Nations. Now, Tim Schwartz holds a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Florida for the past 29 years. He has worked in Haiti as a consultant to humanitarian aid agencies. He is the author of three books, Travesty in Haiti, Sex, Family and Fertility in Haiti and the Great Haiti Humanitarian Aid Swindle. Needless to say, we have brought the best to discuss this topic. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Global Podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks to Sue.
0: So uh, let's start first with really the status of NGOs in Haiti and the number of them that are actually present within the country because of course it seems to be a ridiculous amount. Now I'm I'm personally very familiar with the dynamics of Haiti being Dominican as well myself and and but for our audience uh, I would like to hear a little bit of an explanation on why there are so many NGOs and, and are they all there for different reasons or is it pretty much the same? What's the exact scenario and how did this really start to really creep in? Uh, Tim, let's start with you first.
2: Okay, well, first of all, there aren't 20,000 NGOs. Uh, the fact that we think it's 300 to 20,000 gives you an idea of just how out of control it is because nobody does nobody really knows although the UN has put it closer to about a thousand now how they got here of course I mean there's a there's a long history of it it began in, in the 60s but uh, the lack of the state and uh, extreme poverty obviously is makes it very attractive and the, and, the, and it's very close to the United States so it's easy for church, uh, church teams and other people interested in doing humanitarian aid work to get here. Now, you know, w- w- one of the most important things, that w- I don't know if I should move right into this, though, in terms of the effectiveness of these of these organizations. I mean, they've been here for now for 40 years, a, a large, powerful presence. And as the state, you know, in the crises of the states that, that have occurred in the last, especially in the last 30 years, they increase. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's a sort of a perfect storm for of the problems and to attract uh, donations and support. And, and there's clearly a need for the NGOs for aid. I'll back to you, just
0: yeah, well, clearly, of course, there's a need, particularly when one thinks about the level of development, that still needs to be done. Of course, Haiti has been unceremoniously been labeled the poorest of the Western Hemisphere. Um, but then, uh, Brian, I'll pose this to you. Uh, how, I mean, are they all there for different reasons? I mean, uh, clearly, there uh, if there can't be about 20,000 different reasons for that to be there. Or are they all functioning the same? I mean, where Where is this scenario going?
1: Uh, I agree with Tim that it's that it that it is highly unregulated and 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 out of control. Uh, I think that most of the people who go there go there with good intentions. I think the problem is that people don't back up those good intentions with good thoughtfulness about what they're doing in the long term. Or a willingness to confront their conflict of interest, and uh, you know a great conflict of interest was was exposed in, in in Tim's book *Travesty in Haiti*, where organizations were were taking food aid. They, they were to fighting hunger and they're taking food aid and then selling it at cheap prices in ways that funded their operations to do some things but also put Haitian farmers out of business and and he found a direct correlation between food aid and hunger so the more food aid the more hunger in the country over the long term uh, and and they did this with their eyes open and they can make they could make, they could make rationalizations oh, we need it to fund this this other project but you know they shouldn't have been doing that in any serious moral or practical reckoning with it, they would have said, no, we can't do that, which they eventually did once once it was exposed. Um, another example is in the in, in between 2000 and 2004 the u.s, uh, imposed a development assistance embargo on Haiti because it didn't like Haiti's government policies, which included an expansion of the state role in things like education and health care. And uh, in order to stop the government, the, the U.S. stopped U.S. support to the government, but also stopped other people like the World Bank and the Inter American Development Bank and the European Union from providing support to Haiti's government. And this was support to provide basic government services. Uh, instead, the U.S. said, well, we'll give all the money to the NGOs. And and, and they did, and the NGOs all took the money. And these were NGOs that, if you looked at their websites, they were committed to sustainability in Haiti, to empowering Haitians, but they were willing to, to, uh, to be executors of President Bush's policy of undermining the government and preventing it from providing basic government services, because it helped them in the short run, and they were able to tell their donors that, hey, we've expanded our program. They didn't say we expanded our program because we were part of closing down seven government health facilities and six schools. Uh, And so I think they need to be, NGOs need to be accountable to their beneficiaries, to the Haitian people, to the Haitian government, not just to their, you know, to their press releases and their donor mailings.
0: Well, I'm glad you've mentioned the notion of accountability because, with the plethora of NGO work that's going on, I mean clearly, uh, someone has to be reporting back. I mean, uh, the the NGO world is notorious for their monitoring and evaluation reports and and all that jazz. Now. Are NGOs and are these all the NGOs that are operating within the country? Are they all being held accountable to any particular for, some form of reporting, either to the Haitian government or either to? Uh, clearly, they can't all be American NGOs. There must be some from coming in from Europe.
2: Just, just so let me let me jump in. I, w- I want to respond to that. I want to first make a clarification that that Brian t- just hit on. It's important to understand. You've got two sort of. The NGOs are responding to two clients in terms of money, two donors. There's the governments that, that that fund them uh, lavishly, and there are donors who give money to help poor children or to educate people and who are, you know, small donors and thousands of them, you know, organizations like World Vision and Care International have tens of thousands of donors. But the U.S. government, particularly U.S. government, but also the EU, Japan, uh, you know, in several other countries, Canada, they fund these the major NGOs to the tune of millions of dollars and behind a lot of those programs are political objectives. And that's what what Brian was mentioning. It, it, and that happened when it, when they took apart the air State regime and undermined it with the aid embargo, but it's, it has a much longer history. And because of the U.S. role in financing NGOs, who again, like Brian said, are dedicated, who have mission mandates to help the poor. When they take that money from the U.S. government, they take it to do specific types of programs. That's what we see with the food aid that Brian mentioned, because those programs often undermine the local economy. They have specific objectives and they're politically, you know, you can trace them right back to Congress or, you know, to to political objectives of the countries in question. Okay. So just I mean that's an extremely important point I think to separate those two issues because then so so you have the, you know the minute the NGO takes the, the the government money they've been bought because they have to they, they do it in response to specific programs. Okay. Then there's the other money, right? And this is where where the accountability comes in because of course the government wants accountability but they want accountability to their programs that have political objectives. So you can just discount any sort of uh uh, let's say, noble objectives in the end for government money because of those politics. You know, I, there are some, You know, there's a lot of rhetoric about how this is good, but there's political objectives in the end. Okay, so let's talk for a minute about the accountability with the donor money. No. <laughs> and that's what I've been writing about If tra- both Travesty and Swindle and Haiti. There is no accountability. They do not, in fact, what happens, and, and to cut right to it, the the problem with the entire NGO industry, but especially here in Haiti, is that you have people paying for a service who, that's delivered to somebody else, and nobody ever knows if it's really delivered. The only people who come back and explain what happened are the NGOs themselves, and of course, what they do is what anyone would do, you know, in in a situation like this. You give yourself a good report card, and you explain to your donors and the people who give you, who, are, who are who are paying you. And you did a good job. Even well-intentioned, and like Brian said, most of these people are good people, even the well-intentioned will do that because if they don't, they're not going to get any more money in the future. And that means even if they see the problems, they're not going to get any more money to fix the problems. i go back to you guys.
1: Let me add an anecdote uh, illustrating this lack of accountability. Back in 2009, after Haiti had been hit by a couple of Tropical storms that weren't that bad as storms, but caused massive, massive damage. And there was a, a reckoning among the international community, including governments and and NGOs, saying, you know, Haiti's unable to provide basic services, and this is what caused this outside damage from the from the tropical storms. And there was a big the the the, the Inter American Development um, Bank convoked a big conference in D.C. brought high level people from NGOs from politics. Uh, from from international organizations and the theme was we need to we need to support haiti's government to provide basic government services and there was a keynote speech by bill clinton where he articulated that really well standing ovation everybody's really excited later that day there was a breakout session by the by the uh, Director General of Haiti's Minister of Planning, so the number two person in, in, in planning in the Haitian government, where it was announced that he was going to talk about, okay, everybody's going to work with the government. This is how we're going to, how gonna, we're going to establish a plan and, and make everybody accountable to it. Um, at that breakout session, there about ten people showed up. So all the throngs that were cheering Bill Clinton when he was talking in general principles about how we need to be accountable. When it actually came to talk about accountability, they just wouldn't show up. at the At the uh, at the presentation, the, the the director general of the ministry, he gave a presentation on on an overhead projector with typed out a typed out presentation. So no PowerPoint, no graphics, nothing that that you know a good high school student and any college student could do, and certainly any employee of of the NGOs that have you know multi million dollar contracts. And that really just illustrated the divide between be, between a resource-starred government and the NGOs have have played their role in making sure that the government is deprived of resources. And the, this NGO sector that's got the millions of dollars. And as long as you have that power imbalance, it, it's going to be very difficult for the Haitian government to to actually force any compliance with its national plans.
0: And it's heartbreaking to hear this, you know, and the fact that uh, the fact that there's such a stark contrast between, of course, the NGOs that, you know, that, that parachute into the country and, of course, in the actual government in regards to the resources they can actually, you know, the basics in this case is is alarming and can leave one a bit gobsmacked when thinking about it. And it's it's actually letting me... You know... Yes, go ahead, Tim. Well, I, you know,
2: this is where Brian and I might have a little bit of a difference. Uh, the idea that the government... I mean, I wish, you know, we all wish, most Haitians wish, that the government was responsible and staffed with a lot of honest people and that um, here I'm (laughs) going to sort of contradict myself having asked you not to address this question. But look, politics in Haiti, people go into politics for one reason, and very few of these guys uh, have been some politicians in the past, but very few of the politicians... Who are in place today think in terms of helping Haiti or or political political designs to, to develop the country. In fact, let's just cut right to it. I mean, this is a narco state, and it's and, and we're, there's no question about it. The EA knows it. It's we've watched it transform. We've we've seen it. Anybody who's followed carefully, the uh, the, the criminal proceedings, the people who've been arrested. The, you know, if you if you Google any of the Major uh, parliamentarians in Haiti, you're going to find that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that Haiti is now a narco state, and a lot of these guys in, in the Senate are hiding behind uh, the, the impunity of being in the Senate. That's why a lot of them want to be there, and and we know this in Haiti. You know, I, I can, you know, people involved with the UN intelligence guys, the, the police, we know this, and 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 again, it's not a secret. You you can look, you can Google it. Look online; you can read about it. I don't, you know, the major players in this country for 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 quite some time now. I mean, ironically, and this is where Brian probably would agree me with me. You know, they, they tried to take down the U.S. tried to take one of the ways they tried to take Aristide apart, or or at least make sure he never rose again, was accusing him of narco trafficking. When Aristide, of course, you know, this is a country where so many people are involved in narco trafficking; it would be very difficult to imagine. They're not having been political actors close to Aristide involved in it, but there was never any evidence for that. That's the irony of it. But since Aristide's departure, you've seen Haiti slip into to, to pretty much a pure narco state. Back, to you guys.
1: I agree with Pim on the on the you know the fact of where Haiti's current political leadership is. I'd add two, uh, I think, important points. One. I think at the lower level, there are still public servants who really do want to increase government services and aren't involved in in deeply in corruption and 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 narco trafficking. And second, to the extent that you know we do have this very serious problem of corruption and drug trafficking at the highest levels, that's not an accident and that's not something produced purely by by Haitian causes. Um, it is in part because. When democracy was working in the 1990s and early 2000s, that the international community, including the NGOs, worked to overthrow that democracy. It ended up the development assistance embargo softened the the government up, and then President Aristide was literally kidnapped um, on, on a U.S. plane and sent to exile in, in um in Africa in 2004, and then there's been several other other important incidents. One of them was Secretary of State Hillary Clinton forcing the electoral council to change results, not because of of she under she realized she found a math error, but she said if they didn't change the results, they would lose their visas to to the United States. Things like that they undermine faith in democracy. The people who go into public service for the right reasons they leave or get pushed out when those things happen and you end up with a um the remaining people who are in there for their self-interest who are able to maintain because they 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 have a a patronage machine that that requires stealing money, um, and I think if the if the international community did a much better job of supporting not just who they want to be president, but how that president gets elected, accepts the fact that the Haitian people may vote for somebody different than than the U.S. president would vote for, but saying that's their right and it's their right to experiment with economic and social policies, even if we disagree with them, we're going to let Haiti. Do it rather than saying we're only going to allow this type of leader who's going to impose this kind of policy. Well, look, of course, I agree with Brian, what he just said,
2: but it's even worse because it, it is absolutely mind boggling why the US government, why Hillary Clinton supported specific people. It is they knew they had to know the dea knows the secret service knows the cia knows who these people are and they supported them i cannot for the life of me understand that. i do not believe the clintons are criminals or that they're in some any kind of nefarious activities or that they had economic designs on haiti but why they supported these particular people when there were other people and other candidates who were serious and had reputable histories uh, is beyond me and uh, there, there was a point I wanted to make too that uh, that Brian touched on that uh, slipped away. I, I, I get back to you. I need to come back to me in a minute.
0: No, no worries. Uh, and and it, this is there's clearly no there's no uh, there's no thing to really hide to the fact that Haiti, of course, has a history of corruption and of course a history of foreign interventions. As you were you were both highlighting both for of course personal gains and. And so on and so forth, but the, but the level of corruption is is apparent within the history of the country. Just, just
2: let me let me jump in. I got I, I remember it now. What Brian said about low-level civil servants? Yes, they're being honest ones with 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 aspirations and hopes. And yes, yes, most of the people in Haiti they see what's going on, they understand it. They're as perplexed by the behavior of Hillary Clinton and the people they support as as I am, as or as we are, as as most people. And they 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 see what the politicians are doing, and for them it's just as mind boggling as as for the rest of us. Now speaking about corruption, what Brian said too, he went he he went in that direction as well, and and I think that, that people should understand this. I mean, corruption. When imagine and this is true inside the NGOs as well. When you have an individual inside an organization who's able to steal funds or money, or, or dominate food aid, embezzle it, sell it on a local market, and with impunity, what does that mean? That means that individual is going to become richer, more powerful than the other individual who doesn't do it. He also, he or she, becomes, because they have to share, so they, they become the custodian or the manager of funds for other people. And when there's no accountability, that means that the honest person loses. Not only do they lose they become a pariah and they're at the mercy of the people who who are the the most dishonest and that's what we see in Haiti this is this is getting back to the accountability mechanism when there's no accountability mechanism and let me make it very clear nobody in my knowledge in 30 years working to Haiti has ever been incarcerated or, or even taken to court for stealing development funds and yet we see it all the time or for embezzling food aid yet we see it all the time in fact it's the norm so when you have a situation like that, it's it, it makes it makes it doesn't just invite corruption; it makes it the obvious outcome.
0: Interesting, and it's interesting you're talking about the the history in regards to of of course, embezzlement of aid funds or NGO funds, uh, and and how no one has been held accountable for that. Because I do want to take the discussion. To the 2010 January earthquake as a point of reference, particularly for that, because you know we're approaching nearly 10 years uh, since the earthquake, which is still very daunting to to, to realize because the country has not really recovered uh, since then. And of course, there was a pouring of of funds uh, into the country, into the NGO world, into God knows which humanitarian actor, and so on and so forth, and all the copious amounts of, of concerts from Wyclef to, to to so on and so forth. Yet the, there has been very little recovering going. I mean, let's take a look. I mean, the the best example is the presidential palace, which still remains in ruins if if I'm if I'm not mistaken, and and the key cathedral in the in in au So I I want to you know I want to understand how the the, the dynamics have shifted. Pre 2010 NGO involvement to 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 to, to post 2010 in their involvement and and has there been a shift in how they act and has it made it worse or has there been some benefit to it I mean I'm trying to clearly find some light at this um, but but how has the paradigm shifted since 2010 Let's start with Brian.
1: Um, I actually want to hear what Tim has to say about this but I would say this certainly has not been a paradigm shift. There has been a rhetorical shift in the sense that there's been a recognition that that NGOs, international community need to support um, the government to to provide basic government services and need to play a more a more uh, Kind of constructive, sustainable role. I think that, the, that the, the the actual practical implications of that rhetorical shift are are you know at best delayed. People have not actually changed. And one example is um, NYU Law School did a survey where they asked people, um, "Do you follow a, a human rights based approach to disaster relief?" And human rights based approach means that you're you're accountable. It's sustainable. Um, you're transparent, you're non-discriminatory, you involve Haitians at all levels. And everybody said, "Oh, sure, we do." And then they asked detailed questions, you know what's your mechanism for transparency and accountability? Uh-huh. And, and nobody had them at the detail level. Uh, and so you know we're working towards trying to get to the detail level. I think there are some serious efforts to to do that. I think that they're they're slow. I think they're running up against a lot of inertia, against a lot of Interests that are that are vested in in the status quo, and so I think it's going to be a very long fight. But there are some NGOs that are stepping up. You know, one example is that the 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 the, the uh, controversy that erupted about a year ago over the Oxfam sexual abuse scandal in Haiti, and you know, it was obviously a horrible um, a horrible um, you know attack on on vulnerable Haitian people. Um, it was the Oxfam did cover it up. But, you know, in the end, there were consequences. The head of Oxfam was forced to resign. Many other people were forced to resign. And, and, there, and Oxfam is making a serious effort at, at increasing its, its accountability mechanisms. As far as I can tell, you know, it hasn't reached those. Those those increases haven't reached an acceptable level for Oxfam or for anybody else. But at least there's movement, and, and at least people are starting to get outraged by these things. Which, of course, that type of sexual exploitation has been happening as long as there's been humanitarian actors deployed to vulnerable countries.
0: Indeed, indeed. In fact, there's there's a plethora of books that highlight it, and and uh, <laughs> that, that and I can even that could be a whole different separate episode, in all actuality. But uh, let's let's bring this to Tim now. Tim, what are you know? Brian, Brian has says there hasn't really been the paradigm shift, but, of course, the rhetorical shift. And indeed, of course, the recent situation that has happened with, with Oxfam and their their recognition of, right, that we need to do a change, and, of course, the actions they've taken, accordingly, has been an indicator of that. But what about from your perspective?
2: All right, well, yeah, yeah. That, that's a good way to put it, that there, there has been a rhetorical shift and not a paradigm shift. There were other shifts. You know, Brian's focused on the uh, support to the government and uh, – there were other shifts as well. Uh, you know, with Obama in two thousand and eight, uh, there was a, a recognition not just in Haiti but throughout the world that the U.S. had been undermining agricultural uh, economies, mostly in poor countries. And there was, uh, uh, you know, there was a creation of Feed the Future, which was supposed to shift the U.S. development policies from one of food security. This is how they would undermine economies by flooding uh, uh, these uh, these economies with low-cost food subsidized u.s surplus food that would undermine the local economy and they would do it under the idea that they needed to feed people that people you know would, would benefit from this this low-cost food and to so the shift was from that to up uh, to food sovereignty to help these countries uh, pr- once again produce enough of their own food that farmers could make a decent living and that uh, and that they would need the food aid uh and again, uh, just, just like Brian said, that was a rhetorical shift because we've seen a continuation to this day. Although there has been, for example, uh, a lot of talk following that recognition that food aid was, is not necessarily a good thing, a uh, shift to cash transfers and giving money to people. And and, and that's, that's something that's happening, and it's happening now, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, we see more and more of it. Uh, but it still hasn't reached the point where it – it's the norm or where it's having a a significant effect. But uh, let me make one correction too. Uh, It is better in Haiti uh, today than it was before the earthquake in terms of infrastructure, living conditions, the roads are better. There are roads here now that didn't exist before. Uh, Overall, I mean, and I've been here since before the earthquake and uh, overall, it's, it's, it's significantly better, but the, the tragedy of course is is the money that was lost. And, and, and it's not significantly better for the majority of the population. You know, we, we have some better roads. Uh, so uh, just, just to get that straight, but the real tragedy is the money that was spent. You know, we're talking about $3 billion in donor funds from, from individuals and uh, private donors, and then another what, like 10 billion in, uh, in government donations or government support and and most of that money just had no effect it disappeared it, it uh or it was squandered you know unicef spent 291 million dollars with basically nothing to show for it uh, and these are the things i write about in the book so you know in the, in the end let me just it was you know brian talked about the accountability push back in 2009. There was a major, everybody was calling for it. Bill Clinton was calling for it, Paul Farmer. There was this, you know, sort of coalescence around the need for accountability. And I was somewhat involved in that as well. But it disappeared. And with the earthquake, interestingly, it just became forgotten. People talked about it still, but it, it never happened. So all that money, you know, that disappeared to this day, we not only don't know where it went, but nobody else really gets to find out because there is no format or mechanism to document what happened and to make sure it doesn't happen again. In fact, they continue to do what they've always done, waste money and not explain their failures and misinform the public about what the problems in Haiti really are. Back to you guys.
0: Interesting. So there's clearly there's clearly a laundry list of sins that have been committed um, by the international community and the, the 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 operations of a great many NGOs within the country. And of course, the number of NGOs isn't going to go down anytime soon. So, uh, particularly whether it's regards to maternal health, regards to to, to God knows what. Um, So in this case, I'm wondering whether or not for the NGOs that are looking to cob, and given that we've highlighted the key errors that have been taking place over the course of the years. And of course, the political interests that have been involved. But for an NGO, that's not that that's a that's apolitical, which can be an oxymoron in its own right. But for the for the NGO that is going in for with the exact intention of, let's say, sustainable development in women's rights or health care or and so on and so forth. What should be their due diligence when working in the country to ensure it leads to sustainable development and greater social impact to the Haitian people? What should be what should be their their first thing in mind, apart from you know uh, monitoring and evaluation and, and so on and so forth?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it is important. I think these critiques that we've been making are important. But I think it's also important to recognize that well-designed programs in Haiti work. that Haiti's not a basket case where, where any, everything is is doomed to failure. Uh, time and time and again, you have good programs that are well thoughtfully designed and persistent that that are making a sustainable and sustained difference. And I think there's there's three aspects to most of these. Uh, the first is that they involve real partnerships with Haitians. So Haitians are involved at the design stage, at the valuation stage. It's, they build Haitian capacity and as much as possible they fill articulated Haitian needs, not not the needs of the of the NGO or the donors. I think the second is that the programs have a long term view. They recognize that Haiti's problems are structural and systemic and that they their their responses therefore are structural and systemic. They try to change the systems rather than just just put a band-aid on a problem. And I think the third thing for a lot of them is that they that they do try to engage with the 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 uh, public, the 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 government to provide basic government services. And I'll give you one example: uh, it's it Partners in Health, which is a Boston-based NGO that's had um, that's had hospitals in Haiti now for about twenty-five years, actually about thirty years. And they started off with this charity model where they were going to build a hospital, send U.S. money and U.S. medical people down to to treat Haitians, and they realized after a while that that wasn't going to do it because the better they did at providing health care, the more people come from farther distances to their hospital. And they knew they they couldn't make it for all Haitians. So they said, okay, how are we going to make a systemic change? And they started working with the ministry where, and they, they have these arrangements where Partners in Health runs public hospitals, along with Ministry of Health staff, and and so that they're making decisions jointly, that they're establishing accountability jointly, and... and creating capacity within the Haitian Ministry of Health to sustainably run these hospitals. And there's lots of other smaller groups that are doing that. There's groups like ours, and we're a legal group. What we do is put pressure on the... We help Haitian grassroots groups put pressure on the legal system to get the legal system to work for poorer people. And there's lots of models in almost all the different types of development where where people are doing that well. But I think you need to have systematic solutions to systematic problems. You need to work in partnership and you need to try to engage the, or at least work in, in, in uh, consultation with public officials.
0: Well, in regards to consultation with public officials, I, I, the burning question I have is: of course, Haiti has a history of of, of, of changing um, changing government um, and presidents and and ministers of health and and cabinets. How does one continue to keep that sustainable? What has been maybe the secret of partners in health in in, in keeping that uh, governmental link despite the change in cabinet? I mean, in that sense.
1: I think part of it is that they have a long-term commitment. Um, I, I think you know it's off, often a tightrope because you have some pretty big swings in government, and and I think they're they're probably a little bit helped by the ministry. Ministry of Health is probably among the more professional ministries and the least politicized. But that's also a consequence of the Ministry of Health getting having more collaboration with international international actors, um, and and a lot of it's just based on. On being thoughtful collaborators today, tomorrow, next week, and just st- building relationships that are both personal and institutional, so that Haitians know that you really are going to work with them, that you're not going to to leave when when something happens, and that you're going to persistently work towards bettering healthcare for for the Haitian people.
2: Okay, let me let me respond to him, Jason because this is where Brian and I are going to going to differ. You know what I can do. Uh, all, all the time, and, and for the last 10 years intensely, is look at projects. I, I happen to like Partners Health a lot, and, and I, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not picking on them, but what I do, I mean, I constantly, I've been in the prisons, we've, we've evaluated justice uh, projects. I just evaluated it this over oh, the last few months, one of the most cited and heralded projects in Haiti, a fishing project. It's considered a savior. Everybody jumped on the bag- bandwagon. Bill Clinton, the guy won time magazine, you know, 100 most influential people a year. I evaluated it. there was nothing there. It's been going on for 12 years. There's nothing going on. He, I, I go on and on. The prison, you know, and Brian's, you know, he's got a, a respectable uh, program. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not picking on his program, but we went into these, to, to the prisons for, for USAID, for the U.S. government, and evaluated a program that was meant to help remanded prisoners. Yeah, 80% or more of the people in Haitian prisons haven't been to trial. Some have been in there for years. The judges, were. We, what we found, and, and what people who, you know, and, and Brian, I'm sure, can, 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 can confirm, the judges don't even show up. So, so we've got, you know, multi-million dollar programs that are supposed to help Get people through trials, but the judges don't show up. If the judge doesn't come to work, or if he sees two cases a day, how can you get people out of prison? The, the judge has to sign off, and this has been going on for years. Everybody I talk to involved in the justice system—you know—we're we're talking about international experts who, who are down there. They just throw their hands up. They, you know, they all see the problem, and it's the same thing. I hate to say it. the MSPP years and years and years of this, you know. The, the good doctors. I'm sitting in the house of one right now, who's a who's a sub minister. He left. They tried to kidnap his children. He left The country. Well, that doesn't.
0: surprise it, it, me. It's, it hurts. The, you know, in the end, the people.
2: Yeah. yeah, in the end, the people who stay. You know, a lot of them are. are I you know, I don't want to be. There are good people. Most of them at lower levels. I mean, my, my in my own work doing surveys and evaluations, I've discovered that 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 you can find really terrific honest and very competent people about the high school level these are people who couldn't get out of the country the rest of them you'd be crazy to stay in this country if you have children and you have a decent education why you know why are very few why would you fight the corruption why would you put your children in danger why would you risk the opportunities miss the opportunities to get your children a good education well we believe yeah well for
0: those <laughs> You know, taking it taking it around. Then, of course, there are of course a number of, of, of Haitian Americans that are looking to operate within Haiti. And 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 just to to really wrap up this conversation. But you know, for those Haitian American, let's say NGOs, or let's say for the NGOs that are looking, let's say to to fix this problem, whether it's within education to make it, of course, this is this is a, a titanic task to make it more robust, or or whatever one's endeavor is, from your from your experience tim what is your recommendation for an ngo to really work accordingly so that it brings social impact so that in a hundred years time you know inshallah there can be something sustainable i can tell
2: i can answer that okay let me slip in one more comment too by the way it's become because of the corruption we're talking about and, and and the political mess and the opportunities and the donations What we have in Haiti now, what I see over and over is a culture, a culture of corruption, a culture of development, where people see charity and development as a business, our values with with development. Uh, And so it's created an industry where where people don't see it the same as, as we hope that would work. What do you do? How do you fix it? How do you change it? You know, there's there's examples like the one Brian gave, Partners in Health. My feeling was always that Partners in Health was so successful because you had, and you see this often in Haiti, very, very successful NGOs have a particular person like Brian himself running the NGO, overseeing it, and making sure that people do their jobs. And are, are you know, they, they, they tend to be very good at accomplishing things when when, when that's the, the criteria is to actually accomplish it and not steal it. So when there's somebody who's making sure that things work right, unfortunately, often a foreigner, you tend to see things like partners in health, successful operations. Well, you can't depend on that. And usually when everything falls apart. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, don't worry. So, so basically, there's the, there, there. Of course, there's the, there is a history because of the history of corruption within NGO, and of course, the, the the endemic poverty that exists within the country. There is naturally going to be this inclination to, to profiteer from the NGO, in fact. Like in this case, it's there's, there's more than that. There's some more than that.
2: I've come to see it. For one, so many people here will just take the money rather doing their job if given the opportunity. I've come to see it as the morality. And the way I understand it is that they've seen foreigners come in, misunderstand, carry out projects, don't work, undermine their government. They don't believe in development. What they do and what they know is that they have a responsibility to their family and the people close to them. So if they get in a position where they can access money and access resources, they're going to direct those resources to their own, to their own people, to themselves, to their wife, to their children. And, there's an understanding, by the way, that what we're doing is business, too, and that we're all making money. And there's a kind of a truth to that, because NGO employees make very good incomes generally, especially for the big NGOs. And so and, and, they, and they get good benefits. Meanwhile, the Haitian is getting, you know, a, a living wage if he's if he's fortunate enough. But they don't see it as necessarily wrong. They probably, it's a better way to understand it is they see it as an obligation, as right to steal and embezzle. And imagine if you didn't and you had the opportunity and you know the next guy will, or the guy before you did, think about and you and and you don't how's your wife for your husband gonna to respond to that? How are your children gonna see you? How are your cousins and your nieces and nephews, all of whom need that help and that aid? And now they can see you miss the opportunity and allow somebody else to do it, you're a fool and you're negligent and you've rejected you're basically rejected your obligations to your family. You have turn the entire morality on its head. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it's, it's not surprising <laughs> as well,
0: too, because, of course, if you look at other uh, countries that have, have similar dynamics to Haiti, and particularly conflict zones or post-conflict zones, you happen to have that same dynamic, both with the local populace and, of course, the NGO world. But but that being said, and because I happen to be the forever optimist in the sense, but for an NGO that's looking to approach, I guess, from your sense, given this 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 cultural dynamics that has been introduced and and, uh, solidified over the years because i am one to believe that culture can change and for an ngo that's looking to operate within the country understanding this is going on and let's say it's it's one of the caliber of brian and, and and those that you worked with for yourself how can one you know what is the one tidbit the advice that they should receive in order to really operate to ensure the the most impact they can within the country.
2: I'm going to leave that to Brian.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would just say, you know, I'm not trying to deny the the well-deserved cynicism that, that Tim has and, and, you know, not at all minimizing the challenges, but I go back to what I said before that, that you address systematic problems with systematic solutions. You work in real partnerships with Haitians and you find ways of engaging or, or affecting the state. And I add one thing, and, and this is maybe the hardest part of all, is you leave your arrogance when you pass into Haiti. I mean, it's, it's very easy for those of us who are raised in relative privilege to believe that that privilege gives us um, insight and intelligence and understanding um, over that of people who who have le- had less privilege. And time and time again, you hear Haitians telling foreigners how to do things better and foreigners just not listening. And, and we need to, when, whenever we get to Haiti, we all need to be saying over and over again, okay, what are we screwing up now? How can we listen to people who are trying to tell us that? And if we're not hearing it, it's not because we are so smart that we're able to do everything right in a complex context that we don't fully understand it's because we're if we don't hear complaints it's because we're not letting people complain and so if you're not getting feedback that means your feedback loop is blocked and that that you need to make sure that that Haitians are able to criticize you even if that's uncomfortable even if it's not fun that's what you need to do if you're going to be successful
0: That's actually an excellent way to really wrap this up because that's something that at Pax Techum we really uh, advocate the fact that you know, you 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 are we always say to to whether clients or whether those we're dealing with, you know, you are not God's gift to mankind, you know, though you're going to you know, within a particular conflict zone, you're not going to be the superman to 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 start the peace deal. And if you're going to Haiti, you're not going to be the one to fix the country, but you must indeed understand the people who you're looking to serve and really highlight that word serve you are there to serve and serve accordingly and of course remove the arrogance eat the humble pie because it has no calories you can eat as much as you want and just learn so that was a very good way to end that well gentlemen I feel this needs a sequel because it was so fruitful and, and so I mean, it, it, there's so much to really grasp into this. So thank you very much for really joining us. And I hope this was definitely will pr- spark some inspiration on how to operate in Haiti for our, our our listeners who happen to work within the NGO sector, but also really inspire others to really make a change where possible. So, gentlemen, thank you again. Thank you, Jesu.
1: Brian? Yeah, thanks, Jesu. I enjoyed this. This is a great podcast.
0: Thank you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtecumglobal.org, that's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of Pax on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!